0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always a pleasure to follow Jean-Jacques Hublin because we agree on most things, um, which is is not always the case in paleoanthropology, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, I'm an anthropologist. Anthropology has a long um, love-hate relationship with art and with art history, as many of you probably know. we take a broad uh, ethnographic comparative perspective, and I'm going to present some of that uh, uh, tonight. Um, the title image here um, sort of reflects, I think, uh, often uh, the way that Paleolithic art gets represented uh, in the literature, as if it's some version or some, some deep distant root of the Western tradition, which it's almost certainly uh, not. Um, and uh, it also provides, I think, a very false picture of context, uh, which we know a lot about. We don't have to imagine. We know a lot about uh, for the Paleolithic records. So um, I'm going to show you some nice images uh, a, little, a little later on. It would be too easy to show you nice images and have you ooh and ah about Paleolithic art. You all have seen photographs of Lascaux and Chauvet and all that, and you'll see some of those uh, in a few minutes. But I want to uh, talk about some problems um, that we have Uh, as scholars interested in the evolution of art, if you like. Um, One of them is um, the issue of art being somehow integral uh, to our species. And um, there are a couple of documents in the record that give us trouble. One of them is that, uh, at least in terms of the morphological structure of humans, we have people that we're willing to admit into our species, and even into our subspecies, some of us are at least, um, more than 100,000 years before we have any evidence, even of shells with holes pierced uh, in them. Um, And this raises a rather interesting question then for us. Um, This object, which is one of the earliest representations of some external world object. And I was pleased to hear Jean-Jacques talk about this aspect. It's really here in the vicinity of 35 to 40,000 when we begin to see the first representations of real world objects in other uh, media. We're here at 34,000 in southern Germany, uh, fully 160,000 years after the earliest members of our species in East Africa. This raises for us as evolutionists a rather uh, impressive question. Um, We're we're 130,000 years uh, before we see these kinds of objects that Jean-Jacques has just uh, shown you. Um, Two things emerge from this. First of all, for us as evolutionists, is art a useful scientific category? And I think anthropology um, long ago abandoned the idea that art somehow was a useful, useful science, social scientific category. Um, there's a whole literature in social anthropology that is a critique of art as a social scientific category, or is it an artifact of the Western tradition, which is the position that I think most anthropologists would take, although by convenience they use the term art. Many of you came here today because you saw art on the program, uh, and I'm sorry to disabuse you of uh, uh, of, it, of its value, although you can, you're certainly free to disagree with me. Um, most of us in paleoanthropology talk, rather, about symbolic representation, which is a a mouthful and it's not as interesting as art and it doesn't trigger all of that passion in our brains that art um, does. Um, is it a less ethnocentric, uh, ethnocentric category? Maybe. Um, is it a cultural invention or is it mandated by hardwiring? Of course, this is the question that comes out of uh, the fact that uh, anything that we're willing to call art shows up 150 or 170,000 years after the first members of our species. Um, what is the relationship between hardwiring wiring in the brain? Uh, and the first evidence, the first material evidence for things that we're willing to call symbolic representation. Well, there are a number of ways of thinking about all of this. Um, and I think the record is still sufficiently ambiguous to allow us all to have our way um, in this. Uh, one of them is that, that uh, the evolution of the capacity for symbolic representation uh, was a gradual process over two and a half million years. And the record more or less represents uh, neurological changes that allowed for Uh, symbolic uh, behavior. A second is, uh, and a a far more frequently encountered view, is that this is a very sudden process, and that it occurs somewhere between 100 and 40,000 years ago, long after the first emergence of members of our species, uh, and that it's a rather revolutionary um, uh, uh, development. And uh, finally, uh, a third point of view, which I prefer to adhere to, uh, is that the capacity evolved a long time ago, for the kind of behavior that ultimately shows up in the record that that we call uh, art, Um, but that something special was going on in the vicinity of 100 to 40,000 years ago um, that made it advantageous or even desirable to do some of the kinds of spectacular things that we see in caves or that people were wearing on their bodies. And of course, Jean-Jacques alluded to the fact that one of the um, really exciting things in human evolution that takes place in that period um, is the dispersal, of anatomically modern humans uh, ultimately to replace all of these uh, other populations uh, that preceded them Um, anthropologists like to be old-fashioned and to think in old-fashioned terms and i I was surprised actually uh, that no one to this point has used the term metaphor i'd like you to think about metaphors uh, in a second Um, but um, the attribution of meaning to things and events in the external world seems to me to be a pretty important Uh, part of who we are as modern humans, at least, and it would be nice to be able to see how that plays out um, as we move back through time. But all of you are aware that that, um, there are a whole bunch of uh, processes and concepts um, that we need to keep in mind when we think about this very complex package. Um, And one of them is the whole notion of perception, which uh, we know has a neurological, a very important neurological component, but we also know has an extraordinarily powerful uh, cultural uh, component and I'm here as an anthropologist to try to lend a cultural flavor uh, to some of these uh, these questions how is it um, that we construct meaning uh, from material experience now uh, Carolyn Bloomer is a, was interested in the visual and some of you have been very interested in the visual but what about the material because we're not always operating um, in uh, in something that we can consider to be uh, the visual uh, uh, medium so how do we go from that real world uh, out there with woolly mammoths ro- roaming around and people watching them to the one in which deep in a cave you find a miniature sculpture uh, which we recognize as a, as a woolly mammoth. What is that process um, anyway um, and how does it fit into evolutionary perspectives? Well I don't have to remind you how important culture is. Uh, culture uh, in many ways conditions your very perception of sounds and smells and other kinds of things. Uh, I do want to give you some examples that are relevant to Um, to our current, uh, the current uh, subject uh, here. Um, And uh, you can read any of this in in any basic uh, psychology of visual perception uh, textbook. You know that you don't hear vibrations or feel vibrations in your eardrums. You hear sounds. Um, So you know that perception uh, is is very uh, deeply involved, and cultural perception is very deeply involved in immediately transforming what you perceive sensorily into some sort of meaningful experience. But how do we think about all this? How would we best think about the relationship between perception and symbolic representation? Um, representing what one perceives in nature, uh, for example. And there are lots of terms that have been used. The, the, the terms that this symposium has, has found useful are art and, uh, and aesthetics. Um, but uh, read, uh, if any of you are trained in art history, you probably had the Jensen textbook. I understand last, uh, just last week that our art history students at NYU st- are still suffering through Jansen, um After all of these years, I think it's in like the 17th edition or something like that. And he's been dead for, I don't know, how many decades. Um, but um, how best, what concepts can we forge to understand uh, this record? When does symbolic representation become art? Um, and should we care? As people interested in the evolution of symbolism, should we care? Is art so embedded in our thing Um, that uh, we get lost in the fact that it may not have been the thing about the past at all. Uh, And uh, if you've read any amount of ethnography at all, you know that we are actually one of the rare uh, cultural traditions in which there's actually a word uh, for art. Um, And that raises another question. What do we do about cultures that produce things that we call art that don't even have a word for the category? What is this thing, uh, art, Uh, anyway? Well, years ago, 50s, George Mills set out to try to define in terms that were appropriate anthropology the essential qualities of art. And he um, said that there were two approaches to it. One was in its formal organization, which is usually the approach of traditional uh, art history. And the other was in its metaphorical potential. And I'd like to spend just a little time on metaphor because I think that's really a critical part of what's going on um, here. You can see that Mills was no... Um, enemy of of notions of art. He was trying to to make sense of it, uh, and he described it as controlled qualitative experience. But how do we control the qualitative experience of others? How do we evoke for them uh, what we intend uh, in something? Well, often we refer to this as art, and you can see Jansen uh, doing backflips here to try to salvage the concept even in art history. First of all, a word, um, and then... It's art because we call it art, it's an aesthetic object, um, and you can see that this isn't just uh, an issue for art historians, but you can also see, uh, or for anthropologists, but you can also see that he ends up by, uh, for our purposes, uh, placing museums, churches, and caves in the same category. So there's already a kind of um, um, projection, if you will, uh, of things from the Western tradition. These are some of the premises of traditional art history, and you'll be insulted by these if you're an art historian because they're really a traditional art history. Um, I don't know why we get that version at NYU, but, um, but, but we do. Uh, and it's much more about appreciation and connoisseurship than it is about, about real uh, art history. But you'll recognize all of these things, that art is about genius, it's about urges, um, it's about fulfilling innate needs. Um, and all of these remain to be situated. Some of you have tried very nicely, I think, to situate these in the brain, and that's, that's, that's great, we should be doing that. Um, but traditionally, none of these things have been situated in a way that makes them really appropriate to a scientific uh, approach. And then, of course, there's all this stuff about different categories of art. Um, craftsmen make, artists create. Right? You've heard that one before. Fine art or pure art is to be distinguished from applied art. Well, what are our Paleolithic people doing? What are those Chauvet people doing? Are they doing fine art? Are they doing pure art? Are they doing applied art, if, they're, if it's magic? Um, or is it just craft? And what are those pierced teeth? Um, if they're jewelry, are they art? Do we care about them then? How do we include them in our uh, approach to things? Um, just an example from Jansen. I always pick on poor Jansen. Um, I should probably pick on living people because they can stand up for themselves, but... Um, Jansen spent a lot of time writing about, not a lot of time, he spent a page and a half, um, (laughs) well, you know his book, um, writing about Altamira. And uh, this is a very famous uh, image from Altamira that he wrote about. And this was what he wrote about it, um, using terms like wonderful wounded bison, dying animal, collapsed on the ground, vivid, lifelike, keen observation, assured vigorous outlines, subtly controlled shading, bulk and roundness, power, dignity, agony. Um, this is a 13,000-year-old painting uh, to which, which is being made to carry an enormous amount of subjective baggage. Right? And, and I don't mean to pick on him, I just mean to, to, um, to give a sense that there's a very real danger in, uh, in being affected by places like Altamira in a way that simply allows us to fulfill all of our own cultural uh, expectations and assumptions. Well this is the real bison from Altamira and this is its context and of course what uh, uh, Jansen doesn't tell you is oh, a whole bunch of stuff he doesn't tell you. You don't want to read all this but he tells you it doesn't tell you a whole bunch of stuff but including the fact that inserted that, that first of all the bison is part of a panel with uh, 27 other bison uh, but secondly that in and among the animals the painted animals are more than 70 engraved animals that are not the same species as the ones that are painted. Right? And secondly, it's not on the wall of a cave, as Jansen says, it's on the ceiling, which changes your experience of it rather dramatically. So one of the things that a modern paleoanthropology does first and foremost um, is to try to, as best as archaeology can, contextualize these things before jumping to these uh, kinds of... Uh, of uh, uh of descriptions that already have interpretation built uh, fundamentally um, into them. Okay, so well, you all know that anthropology is about other cultures and that that we always disprove people's claims by saying, oh, some culture somewhere in the central desert of Australia does it this way, so that proves that it's not universal, but um, in many cases, that argument is justified. Um, And uh, I'd like to just explore a little bit this business of, of metaphor um, which uh, art historians uh, and uh, Aristotelians uh, have seen as a rather important and, and interesting uh, aspect. And uh, for me, in much of what is Paleolithic, so called Paleolithic art, much of it, I think, can be categorized as something that is evocative in a metaphorical way. That is, the images make reference to something that is not inherent in um, the, uh, the images. Um, well, some old things by Lakoff and Johnson, which I think are really good, um, that show just to what degree metaphors structure our very understanding or grasping of, uh, the, uh, of the world around us. The most intangible things we grasp by metaphors that refer to the most tangible things. And I suspect that that's what's going on. Right? This fa- falls very ni- nicely into one of the, the presentations we had uh, this morning. But I just, uh, I beg of you to seek the relationship between the images that you have here and all that emotional stuff that they evoke for you. There is nothing inherent in the image on the upper left uh, that has anything to do with love whatsoever except in a particular cultural context with a particular set of accepted metaphors, right? And the same thing could be said of the other image itself. So what's that got to do with Paleolithic art? Well, it has a lot to do with Paleolithic art. What's actually being represented, represented, on the walls of places like Lascaux and Chauvet? Well, it's hard to know. Um, the, uh, it's very clear that certain uh, animal species are being selected for. Um, they most often have nothing to do with the animals that are being eaten. They're animals that are being thought about and represented. Um, we often have the associations of particular species in a very structured way. There are something like 16 horses in this panel. Uh, many of them underlying uh, this rather large uh, aurochs. And um, we often overlook, in the the sort of dynamism, if you like, of these images, we often overlook um, the, the very complicated business of why anybody would do this in the first place. And it's even more complicated now that it's been shown that in Lascaux, all the horses were done first. They went through the entire cave, painted all the horses, and then they inserted the other animals in around them. So what are these relationships? Well, we have those. Right? Imagine yourself 20,000 years from now coming on this image. Right? Or this one. How's, the, how's that? We have complicated notions about animals, they're metaphors for certain kinds of things, and I won't I'll, I'll spare you all of the, the sports names of all of the teams uh, uh, in the different conferences. Um, but um, I think we have to open our minds here and to see many of these images not as representations of what they are, but as representations of very powerful metaphors um, that, are, uh, that these cultures are trafficking um, in. Think about it another way. Think about it in the way of what animals actually mean to you, right? Um, what is a horse? What does this evoke for you? Someone who's uh, a, a representative of the Western tradition uh, someone who's grown up with horses in a particular context, what does that horse actually mean to you? What, can you actually see this horse like a Magdalenian 18,000 years ago uh, saw it uh, without the various metaphors and associations we have? I would argue no. Um, I would argue that different cultures, even closely related cultures, have very different relationships to nature that are embedded in the representations of that nature, and I would argue that the Paleolithic is no exception. And if you think Americans are excluded from this, well, there's a very interesting. Go online and look for horses and, and uh, uh, conflicts with uh, French culture and all sorts of things because we have ideas about animals and what's appropriate to eat and what's appropriate to paint and what's appropriate to think and what's noble and what's clean and what's not. Um, and I'm, I, w- while I may, may not show you uh, these, these uh, fantastic Paleolithic images, I hope I can get you to think about those images in a way that perhaps you haven't thought about them before. Sorry for the profanity, but I thought this was just too good to pass up. Um, we do have animal metaphors that are very profound and allow us to talk about things that are very difficult and complicated to grasp and to talk about, including conflicts between nations uh, and such matters. Uh, again, I challenge you to find this 2,000 years from now and know what the hell anybody is talking about. All right. To accommodate all of this, I have uh, constructed what I call different cultural logics of representation, and I think we can get at some of those archeologically, but uh, we have to come to terms with the fact that different cultures have extraordinarily different notions about even what an image is, Um, about uh, its power. Uh, When we say an image is powerful, that tends to mean that it's moving somehow. But if you were to talk to a central desert Australian about the power of an image, That would be basically the electrical force that it generated when you touched it and what threw you to the ground. The images actually have physical power. Representations are going to feel very different on the walls if they're constructed out of those different views of of things. Um, In the San, the southern San from from, uh, southern Africa, the rock support is a threshold to the spirit world. It's not a surface. You're going to put very different things on that, quote, surface, if you're thinking of it as a veil that separates you from a parallel spiritual universe. So I think we need to be really quite careful about about projecting art um, outside of our own particular tradition. And just a final wonderful example from the Inuit in which all representation uh, has embedded in it the fact that everything in the world is transitory and that one thing changes into another. These are two views of the same image. You can see with, I think, nine strokes um, this, uh, this uh, Inuit uh, produced something that is, uh, is quite extraordinary, a, a, a caribou in two different poses. Right? And even something as fundamental as realism. There's an old French guy, back from the 20s, named Georges Luquet, who made a distinction between realisme intellectuel and realisme visuel. And he did that because certain ethnographically studied people in Africa We're much more content and interested in the image at the right than they were in the image at the left. Why? Because it has more information. It's more realistic. You actually see more of the animal. We're into visual realism. A lot of other cultures are into another kind of realism that we need to be careful about not uh, not ignoring. And finally, let me just show you some very nice uh, images from the Grat Chauvet. Uh, But let's keep something in mind while we're doing that these are deep dark caves. What is a cave? We have a certain metaphor for caves even. Um, And uh, I often say to my students that if we knew what caves were to Paleolithic people, we'd know, we'd be halfway to knowing why they were down there and why why they were painting what they were painting um, on the walls uh, 32,000 years ago. A final example to, uh, uh, I think, to, to make you even more uncomfortable Um, which is that uh, this image has been reproduced in a lot of uh, uh, art textbooks recently. It's from Chauvet. It's a particular piece of a particular panel, and it's often described as a frieze of painted horses. When I taught my uh, uh, prehistoric art class at NYU, I had a person who raised horses in the the crowd, and she came up after class after she saw this image, and she said, that's not a frieze of horses. Those four horses could never exist in the same space, In real life, they're all doing fundamentally different things. Fleeing, sleeping, um, uh, at rest, uh, etc. In fact, it's not a representation of space, of a spatial relationship. It's a representation of time, of one horse in four different phases, if you like. Be really careful, I think, about imposing our rules on uh, this distant past. Um, And uh, I I love this image because... um, If you look at these horses, they're the product literally of tens of hours uh, of work by very accomplished people who are preparing the surfaces. Uh, And you may not have seen this image, but it just shows you how wonderfully well-preserved Chauvet uh, is. Every last stroke of the tool is preserved on that surface. And then there's the thing to close about the, the combinations and the associations of things that fall beyond... I think, for the moment, our comprehension. What is the relationship on the same panel between a lion in profile, a bison in profile, and the lower legs and, and sexual anatomy of a human woman? Right? They're doing some very complicated things based upon very complicated worldviews and very complicated values that I think the very notion of, uh, of art makes it too easy to ignore. I guess that's, that's the point I'd like to leave you with is that, as I said before, I could show you wonderful pictures and you'd ooh and ah, um, but I think it's much more important to begin to think about how to tease something out of these that's faithful to the original people who did them and not simply faithful to the way that we project onto the distant past. I'll leave it there. Thank you.